Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want you to know out of the gate uh, that I love Instagram. Instagram is the one social media platform I actually enjoy. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram at EW Erickson. And I want you to know I, I follow a number of you. I, I, I follow back listeners, some, uh, not not the ones who just put up memes, but the ones who actually are normal people. I follow them, and I want you to know I hate every one of you who put up pictures of the snow over the weekend. I hate your guts. I uh, just need you to know this out of the gate that I hate you all. <laughs> I I got on Instagram. It was raining and making, and it was snowing. All my friends up in North Georgia, these beautiful pictures of snow. My buddy Ryan texted me pictures of playing with his kids in the snow. I, I hate him. I hate you all who had snow this weekend. It was amazing. I mean, it, it, our weather needs Thorazine. It was in the 70s, and then it starts snowing, and then it's in the 50s and then the 60s, it can't make up its mind. We've got a schizophrenic weather cycle here. Now, nonetheless, I, I, I will endeavor to move on with the news. There's a lot of news. Uh, and the, to begin with, I, I want to begin with a meta commentary, if you will, a commentary on the commentary of what's happening right now. Because as you are undoubtedly aware, orange man bad. Uh, th- this has become the standard in the media where anything the president does is bad. For example, uh, and this is somewhat funny, uh, about three weeks ago, there was a running commentary on uh, the the social media platform Twitter about brutalist uh, architecture. Now, if you don't know what brutalist architecture is, it, it, it... it is not the word brutal architecture is not meant to describe that the architecture is brutal or harsh, but in fact, that's what it is. If you know what the FBI building looks like in Washington, D.C., that's brutalist architecture or a, a very uh, Eastern European Soviet style architecture. It is sterile. It is cold. It is blocky. Uh, it's it's not an attractive architecture style, and it is widely regarded as an architectural mistake. Uh, Georgetown, any of you who are familiar with Georgetown University, Georgetown University has a beautiful, beautiful building, and they hired an architect to design Georgetown University's library, and the library was done as a replica of its beautiful building, but it was done in, in the, the library was done in a brutalist interpretation, and it is one of the ugliest buildings on planet Earth. So the president of the United States issues an executive order last week. Now, again, three to four weeks ago, it was one of the very few things that you could find on a bipartisan basis on social media. It was agreed upon by people on the left and people on the right that federal architecture needs a makeover. It's like Catholic churches in the 70s after Vatican II. My Lord, people. Have you all seen Catholic? It's it's crazy to me. And I've got this ongoing uh, email exchange with friends of mine who are Catholic on the the collapse of Catholic architecture after Vatican II. Now, I'm not Catholic, uh, but but I do pay attention to these things. But you go out and you you got these, these just weird churches. They are the, the weirdest designs, and, and it all came out of the 60s and the 70s 
when when people want instead of instead of building a a cathedral or or a church where you go in and you're overwhelmed by the beauty and and you feel a sense of awe, it, it's it's just garbage. It's absolute garbage. They should tear them all down uh, and and start over with something that's actually pretty. But nonetheless, uh, so bipartisan, bipartisan support. Uh, trust me, there's a point here. Bipartisan support three weeks ago on the idea that the federal government needs to do something about its architecture, that we need to get beyond brutalist architecture, the, the international standard architecture and revert to some level of architecture that has a shared sense of history in it. So the president of the United States late last week issues an executive order that from here on out, all federal buildings need to conform to a neoclassical style of architecture that resembles that which our founders would have appreciated in the designs of Washington, D.C. If you go to Washington, D.C., uh, you'll see what we what I'm talking about here. What the president means is you walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, you have some beautiful, beautiful buildings done in a neoclassical style, a Greco-Roman style, if you will. And then you get the FBI building and it's garbage. And, and a couple of these other federal buildings are just absolute garbage. So the president of the United States issues an executive order saying you, you got to do this. And again, three weeks ago, Every single person except for one troll somewhere in San Francisco was in widespread agreement that something needed to be done. So the president does it and, oh, orange man, bad. Suddenly, there's a defense of brutalist architecture from the very people who were condemning it three weeks ago. You got Benjamin Applebaum or what is it? You know, you know the idiot New York Times editorialist who's, who sat there with, with Pete Buttigieg in the editorial board meeting and claimed that Buttigieg was behind a price-fixing scandal in Canada because Buttigieg worked for McKinsey Consulting and McKinsey Consulting did outside work for this Canadian company that Buttigieg had no idea about. And Buttigieg actually says, that's bull beep. Uh, to the guy. And the guy's this this point. This is the same guy, by the way, who was outraged that LSU would give its students the day off after the championship game. And now he's in defense of brutalist architecture. It's just terrible that Donald Trump would have standards. But this this gets to a larger issue here. There is absolute rage in Washington, D.C., over the ouster of Alexander Vindman from the National Security Council in the White House. Rage, the rage of Achilles, rage. Here's Jake Tapper uh, talking about this with Rick Santorum uh, on CNN over the weekend. Do not worry. I will be fine for telling the truth. And why do you have confidence that you can do that and tell your dad not to worry? Congressman, because this is America. This is the country I've served and defended, uh, that all of my brothers have served, and here, right matters. That was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman testifying in the president's impeachment hearing about the difference between his father's Soviet Union and American democracy on Friday. Vindman was fired along with his twin brother. And another key impeachment witness, Ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland. Let's discuss. Uh, Senator Santorum, let me start with you. Some Republican senators uh, were urging the president not to fire Sondland. In addition, Susan Collins of Maine said that she doesn't favor any retaliation. But we're clearly seeing some retaliation. Well, look, the president has a right to have people around him that are that he's comfortable with and support him. And obviously, these people have done things to lose uh, the president's faith in them. I, the, the president has the right to do these things, whether he should or shouldn't have done them. 
That's a question. I, I, I certainly, as a president, wouldn't want people around me who uh, don't support what I'm trying to accomplish. And it seems like, it's, particularly in the case of Vindman, that's the case. You know, the level of meltdown by Democrats over this, if, if Barack Obama had someone in his White House who was leaking to undermine him, you and I both know the media would be defending the ouster of this person. And before you say, well, Barack Obama would have never done anything like this, let, let, let's remember that the Internal Revenue Service under Barack Obama investigated and targeted conservative Tea Party groups in the 2010, 11, and 12 and stalled getting them their 501c3 status or their uh, 501c4 status because they, Lois Lerner and others within the IRS uh, believed that they would undermine the president or they would attack the president, they would go after the president. Uh, you have an inspector general saying that the IRS, uh, members of the IRS knowingly ignored the rules of the IRS to engage in partisan retaliation against these groups. Can you imagine if there was a leaker at the IRS? the media would be encouraging Barack Obama to fire that person. The problem here is the moral relativism of both sides. You, you know, I continue to believe Donald Trump should have never had that phone call uh, the way he had it with Ukraine's president. It, it was bad. Had he not had it, he would have gotten impeached. You know, in the same way, had he just exercised a little bit of self-control and not fired James Comey, he would have never had the Mueller investigation. Now, that being said, it, it's pretty clear that Comey was a hack and should have been fired. Uh, you know, if Hillary Clinton had fired James Comey, though, the media would have said it was d- deserved if she were president. And that's part of the problem here. There's a moral relativism on both sides where uh, if our side does it, uh, it's virtuous. If the other side does it, it's a sin. As opposed to saying this is right and this is wrong. And if it's right for one side, it's right for the other side. And if it's wrong for one side, it's wrong for the other side. But we're not allowed to go there anymore. God help us. We're not allowed to go there. And now you've got the, the Democrats falling over themselves to say that Donald Trump is a king. He's a dictator. It, it's we'll never be able to remove him. I, I got to ask, just as an aside, how many Democrats are going to get to November and say, hmm, well, guess I'm not going to go vote. He's a dictator. They, they told me he's a king now. I can't get him out of the office. So why, why bother to go? I mean, I don't think it's going to be significant numbers, but I do wonder to some degree, particularly with the Democratic meltdown. Oh, we will get to the Democrat meltdown that's happening right now over the the field. My goodness, they are in absolute panic mode after the good week the president had last week. But uh, no, seriously, how many people are going to decide that, oh, my goodness gracious, uh, this man's a dictator now. Then we're never going to be able to remove him from office. They just throw their hands up and, and, and get out of politics. It makes you wonder. And listen, I don't think it's going to be a significant number, but when you have mainstream media talking heads saying this man is a dictator now, there's nothing we can do, some people are going to lose hope. Other people, of course, are going to get violent. Uh, In Florida, in Jacksonville, Florida, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, neo-Nazi-looking type, well, it would be if, if he was doing this to Democrats, but because he's doing it to Republicans, no, no, ran a van through a Republican voter registration tent. If this was a just just uh, let's play hypotheticals, hypothetically, Stacey Abrams fair fight does a voter registration drive and a blonde haired, blue eyed dude in a van runs through the tent where they're doing the voter registration drive. What do you think the media reaction would be? 
how many days of coverage would it get? But it was a progressive activist who did it to Republicans. So we're not getting a ton of media coverage, are we? No, we're not. And we're not because there is a partisan indifference to these sorts of stories. And that partisan indifference comes from the fact that they are hypocritical and they give sympathy to the left and they ignore facts that might embolden people on the right. There is a moral relativism on both sides. I mean, let's be honest. Let's let's flip this over on the other side. If Barack Obama had made a phone call to Ukraine's president and said, investigate Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump, you who are listening right now, nodding along with me, would be beside yourself with rage and want the president impeached. That's just the reality of it. Each side believes its own side virtuous and the other side vain and at fault. But that's not the situation we're dealing with right now. We, we can do all the what about scenarios we need to, but that's not the situation we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with the situation of this president. And I have said repeatedly he shouldn't have done that phone call. I don't think it was impeachable, but I do think it was wrong. And I wouldn't think it was impeachable if Barack Obama did it, but I would continue to think it was wrong. But just by virtue of saying it's wrong, there will be rally the flag contenders for this president who will be outraged with me for saying that that it was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. Uh, And and there will be Democratic partisans outraged that I don't think it's impeachable. But if the shoe were on the other foot and I said it was wrong, a lot of the Republicans upset with me for saying it was wrong for the president to do it would be cheering me on for saying it was wrong for Obama to do it, but, but excoriating me for saying it's not impeachable. We're in an age of moral relativism, and there's a lot of nonsense out there. And the media, of course, is so biased and and has no sense of history that ignores these things. I am old enough to remember Barack Obama telling supporters to take guns to knife fights, and the media was comfortable with his rhetoric. I am old enough to remember Joe Biden telling black voters that Mitt Romney would put them back in chains, and the media turned a blind eye. I am old enough to remember Barack Obama telling Hispanic voters that Republicans were their enemies, and the media said nothing. I am old enough to remember Barack Obama lying and telling people if they liked their doctor, they could keep their doctor, and the media defended him and assailed Sarah Palin for saying it was a lie, and even PolitiFact came out and said he was telling the truth and then had to say it was the lie of the year. Oops, my bad, got it wrong, we made the mistake of believing him. The media gave him a pass. I am old enough to remember the Obama administration uh, giving guns to Mexicans in Fast and Furious and getting an American Border Patrol agent killed. And I'm old enough to remember the Obama administration's IRS investigating and harassing Tea Party groups. The media turned a blind eye to all of this. They gave a pass to all of it. And now suddenly they think that Donald Trump is uniquely bad, uniquely terrible. His voters are uniquely violent and his rhetoric is uniquely violent. Because they were asleep for eight years is the only thing I can imagine. This, this, so much of the anger and rage about Donald Trump firing Alexander Vidman, you and I both know darn well that if Barack Obama had done that, the media would be giving him a pass. And, and that's why I can't be outraged by it. I, I don't blame the president for wanting to reassign people. He didn't fire them. They reassigned him out of the White House. 
and I don't blame them for doing so. It is clear that this administration uniquely, if there's one unique thing about it, has a bunch of holdovers from the Obama administration and careerists who are partisans who lean to the left, who hate this president and want to undermine him, and he has every right to clean the White House of these people and move them to other places. And the fact that the media is upset about it is really the media is upset because their sources, the leakers, are being reassigned. It is 26 after the hour. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. I hope you guys had a great weekend. Those of you with snow, I'm deeply, deeply jealous. I'm, I'm trying not to hate, but I may have to give in to Sandy. So I did the NPR event on Friday night. Okay, can, can we be honest here? Can we have a heart-to-heart, just friends here? So I did the NPR event. I drove over to Birmingham. I, I literally, so I did this show live, and then I had to pre-record my evening show, and then get in the car, drive to Birmingham. They had had tornadoes. You know that storm front that came through uh, Thursday, where we did so much uh, rain coverage on Thursday. Well, in Birmingham, there were uh, there were tornadoes, and so they had a part of the interstate between Birmingham and Atlanta shut down. I had to take back roads to get over there. Still made it plenty of time, and then I did the event, and I I, I got out of there. It was like 8.30 at night, and I thought, good grief, I'm just going to drive home. I had a hotel room, uh, but it was right by a hospital, and so there were ambulances, and I'm like on the 14th floor, and the ambulances were still so loud in the hotel room, I'm never going to be able to sleep here. So I drove back to Macon. Uh, I got back to Macon at like 2.45 in the morning and then slept until 11 and then ran errands. I, I want to take my wife down to M&T down in Hawkinsville, that great butcher shop they've got. If you've never been down there, I talked about it last week, uh, but didn't. But, okay, so here's the thing. It was a fun event. It, it was an NPR uh, Corporation for Broadcasting event. It'll be – I think they're going to sh- show clips of it on PBS. They'll air clips of it on NPR stations around the country at, at some point later this year. And it was on uh, people on different sides of the aisle being able to engage with each other in conversation and find things that matter in life. And ultimately, it, it, what you find is is a lot of times you wind up agreeing on things. You just have different solutions, but it's it's really hard to hate someone up close. And so I, they had me with a, a lady, Latasha Brown, a wonderful person, and she is the uh, Black Voters Matter founder in Alabama. Helped uh, get Doug Jones elected against Roy Moore. She's a a p- partisan political activist, but she's a wonderful person. We had a, we had a great conversation. She's just hilarious, but. So they played a clip. We had recorded a part of a conversation to air, uh, and they played part of it. And I just thought, how can anybody listen to that voice of mine? I don't know. Y'all, I don't like my radio voice. And everybody comes up to me and says, oh, you, you have a voice for radio. It's like, no, I don't. I got a voice for print. And yet you're listening, so I thank you. I thank you very much. It was a good conversation. But, man, that drive back, I probably should have gotten a hotel room. But it was worth it. Now, when we come back, we got to move on to, well, I I don't even want to touch on the Academy Awards. 1917 should have won. I haven't seen Parasite. It's apparently a a, a movie about class, and, and it's it's a Chinese or, or, or Japanese. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I'm not going to see it. I, 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 I'm not a big watcher of subtitle movies because I want to enjoy the movie and not have to read uh, while I'm watching the movie. But nonetheless, uh, it won. 
Uh, Brad Pitt, of course, uh, made his political speech. And then Joaquin Phoenix is all upset about us getting milk from cows. These people are insane. And that insanity is playing out with the great Democratic freakout over Bernie Sanders. We'll get to that when we come back. Well, the great Democrat freakout is upon us as Bernie Sanders is leading the polls in New Hampshire and his voters are locked in for him. And now, of course, you've got the Democrats out there hand-wringing over just how terrible they all are and and how awful the Democratic Party is and how sexist it is. The three frontrunners in most polls are all white men. Is sexism playing a role still? I think sexism absolutely plays a role. I mean, I do think there is a gender piece here that we still suck at talking about. It's uh, something to see all three uh, the type, the top of the polls being led by three white men, though. What I believe to be the elephant in the room about my campaign. What is that? Electability. Is America ready for a woman and a woman of color to be president of the United States? I still remember the reaction when Kamala Harris dropped off the stage amongst black women in my life. It was almost like, wait a minute, we have got to find a way as a party as a nation, both parties are. She had the double-edged sword of not just being a woman, but being an African-American woman. I think it is very difficult for a woman of color, especially the first woman of color, to run uh, for office. I do think that women are still held to different standards as candidates. Do you think there's a gendered issue here in terms of people not seeing you as the person to get it done? I do think there's a double standard. You are one of those people in the middle that everybody wants, it seems, (laughs) but I think if you were a man, you'd be further ahead. I'm just saying that. Why do you think white male candidates are doing better than any of the women candidates? Well, I don't know. The six women of color that quit your Nevada campaign with complaints of a toxic work environment and tokenism. Racism and oppression in this country have left a long legacy. The, the Iowa caucus is essentially the perfect example of systemic racism. There's something about leadership and what that looks like that makes us gravitate towards, um, towards men and, um, and even white men. Y'all, here's the thing. They can wring their hands about this and they can be upset about it. But you know and I know if Nikki Haley were the Republican nominee for president, the vile attacks from the left would be insane. And if there's a female Democratic nominee the very attacks that the Democrats would be willing to make on Nikki Haley, they would scream were racist and sexist. But if it were Nikki Haley, they, they would, or any Republican woman, Kelly Leffler here in Georgia. By the way, uh, just see, Susan B. Anthony uh, has just endorsed Kelly Leffler. Uh, this just came out, um, just a, a, a deviating from where I was going to go. Uh, SBA list candidate fund endorses Kelly Leffler for U.S. Senate in Georgia. Uh, now, the, Marjorie Dannenfeller, a wonderful person, says we're proud to endorse Kelly Leffler for re-election as a strong pro-life, pro-woman leader. Her voice is needed in the Senate more at this pivotal moment. What's so interesting is that uh, the Susan B. Anthony list was one of the groups uh, very vocally in support of Doug Collins and highly critical of Brian Kemp for uh, putting Kelly Leffler in. And they are now uh, they have gotten to know her. She has met with them, spent time with them, and this is actually really big news considering just how critical they were of the appointment to come around and endorse her is, is a good sign. But nonetheless, so if it, the, the attacks that come on Kelly Leffler from the left, uh, 
the attacks that would come on Nikki Haley. And by the way, Nikki Haley had these attacks. I remember in, in 2000, listen, Nikki Haley is a very good friend of mine. I've known her for a number of years, uh, for, for more than a decade. And uh, when she was running in 2010 for governor in South Carolina, I went over there and helped her. And, and Democrats were attacking her, saying she was sleeping around. She wasn't. That's what they were saying. We can't elect this woman. She's a tramp. I mean, that, that was the Democrat argument about Nikki Haley. Uh, where, where's the sexism? Where, where, where's the racism? No, no. It, it's okay. They can do that against her. They can do that against uh, a Kelly Loeffler. They can do that against a Sarah Palin. They can do all these things from the left against the right. And the media won't bat an eyelash. Uh, we'll give them a pass. And then when it comes to the Democratic Party themselves, they're like, oh, we're just a bunch of racists and bigots and, and sexists when it comes to our own side. Now, all of this is actually about this. Bernie Sanders. They're freaked out about Bernie Sanders. They, they are in absolute meltdown over the idea that Bernie Sanders might actually be able to win this thing, and they're not sure how to proceed. And Sanders, of course, has a lock on support by a lot of people, but one of the big concerns from Democrats is socialism. Socialism doesn't poll very well, and he's doubling down on this sort of stuff, and Chuck Todd even had it with him. You can't win voters outside of that very well. I mean, you were in single digits among older voters, and I say this because older voters vote. The answer is yes and no. The answer is we are having, and I, we have got to work on this issue, because my record mm-hmm. with se- four senior citizens is a very strong record, and we're going to work on that. I'm the strongest defender you could see in defending Social Security and so forth. But in terms of Democrats, in terms of running against Trump, we do just fine uh, with senior citizens who will vote for me against Trump if they're Democrats. You- yeah, except uh, Chuck Todd pressed him on this issue. Listen to this. Speculation. Somebody that likes their 401k right now but doesn't like the character of Donald Trump, how do you convince them to vote for you? I convince them to vote for us because we are going to create an economy that works for the middle class. But they think working. their economy works well for them. Well, it, for some of them, yeah. it may. It's but been working well. Right, that's Trump, my point. look, here is the reality. Half of the American people today are living paycheck to paycheck. Today, you got a half a million people sleeping out on the streets. When you got three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of America, well, the only country in the world, major country in the world, not to guarantee health care to all people. You got 45 million people struggling with student debt. Please don't tell me that this economy is working well for all people. It is. Uh, you know, what's a, it's kind of a Rush Limbaugh rule of thumb here. Notice how homelessness is only a problem when a Republican is in the White House. It's not like we suddenly have tent villages across the nation because Donald Trump is president. It's not like suddenly people are are homeless or suddenly people have a great student loan burden because of Donald Trump. It's not like people woke up yesterday and said, oh, my goodness, Donald Trump is president. Look at my debt burden. It's not it's it's not like someone said, well, Donald Trump got elected, Marge. You know what that means. We got to go pitch a 10 under I-20 and hang out there. We lost our home because Donald Trump got elected. No, which as an aside. So when I was going to Birmingham on Friday, so I went up from Macon uh, to Atlanta and got on from 75 to I-20. Traffic was fine at the time of day that I did that. And so I'm going, if you've ever been to Atlanta, as I realize some of you avoid it like the plague, uh, but we, the, the 75-20 interchange. 
I'm on that bridge and there's a tent city under the interstate. I had no idea that was there. I, I, I'm trying to drive and just I'm, I'm trying to count. I counted at least 15 tents and they're just spread out. It's like a park. You would have thought they were having a concert. It was a bunch of hipsters hanging out, waiting for Dave Matthews, smoking their weed, waiting for Dave Matthews to play. And he was just, there were tents everywhere. How does this not get attention? And it's not like this is new. It's not like that suddenly Donald Trump is elected up, let's go pitch a tent. No, no. The Democrats only care about homelessness when Donald Trump is president. And here in Atlanta now, I, I'm broadcasting from Atlanta today. I'm not actually in Macon. So I'm up in, the, in my studio in Atlanta. And, and we got a tent city not three miles from me and no one seems to care. Because... Democrats run the city. It's like in Austin and Texas and in L.A. and San Francisco, massive homeless problems. But the Democrats are in charge, so it's okay. The homeless can feel good about themselves. And here comes Bernie Sanders saying, oh, we got all these homeless people and all these people with student loans, as if they didn't exist three years ago when Barack Obama was president. And, of course, he's doubling down on the socialism stuff, and that's got the Democrats just completely freaked out. Okay, but here's the question. In a general election where you're going to need the support not just of liberal, progressive, left-wing Democrats, but you're also going to need the support of independents, even conceivably some moderate Republicans, how do you overcome not the communist label but the socialist label, which which Joe Biden said, not Donald Trump? Right, right. That's fair enough. Chris, and I, I want to make two points on that. Number one, in many respects, in many respects, we are a socialist society today. We have a huge budget, puts money into all areas. Now, Donald Trump, before he was president as a private business person, he received $800 million in tax breaks and subsidies to build luxury housing in New York. Now, what does that mean when the government gives you $800 million in tax breaks and subsidies. The fossil fuel industry, whose product happens to be destroying our planet right now, receives tens and tens of billions of dollars in tax breaks and subsidies. So does the pharmaceutical industry. The difference between my socialism and Trump's socialism is I believe the government should help working families, not billionaires. So I believe that health care is a human right. I believe we should raise the minimum wage to a living wage of 15 bucks an hour. I believe, in fact, that the rich must start paying their fair share of taxes when you have massive levels of income and wealth inequality. But, but, but Senator- uh, yeah. A defense of socialism from Bernie Sanders that we're, we're already a socialist country. This isn't actually going to go over super well with people i i i do not believe i mean a justification of well a a justification and the defense of socialism that we're already a socialist country but we're we're not helping the right people so is this an acknowledgement from bernie sanders that in a socialist country it's not necessarily the poor people who will win it still depends on who's in charge, and Bernie Sanders is a multimillionaire with multiple houses. Is he going to redistribute any of that wealth to the poor? One more Bernie Sanders clip that has the Democrats freaking out. Joe Biden says that your Democratic Socialist label would hurt down-ballot candidates. Uh, he's not the only one saying it. Vulnerable Congressman Connor Lamb 
in western Pennsylvania said, quote, it would be really hard for you to win his district. Congressman Anthony Brindisi, um, um, I'm sorry, Congressman Anthony Brindisi of New York says your platform is not a winning message. Uh, Congressman Baer of California says you would probably put the House majority in jeopardy. What's your response to these uh, Democrats who are worried that you're going to hurt them in more moderate districts? Well, the truth is that our agenda is precisely the agenda that the overwhelming majority of the American people want. We're going to grow the voter turnout. In Iowa, where the turnout was not as high as I wanted it to be, among young people, people under 29 years of age, we increased the voter turnout by some 33 percent. It's a huge voter turnout. And we do that all over the country. I think you're going to see incredible gains for down-ballot Democrats. Look, at the end of the day, the American people want to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. They want to make public colleges and universities tuition-free and cancel student debt by a modest tax on Wall Street speculation. The American people understand health care is a human right, not a privilege. The function of health care is not to make $100 billion for the drug companies and the insurance companies. The American people understand we have got to deal with the existential threat of climate change. Our agenda is the agenda of working class and middle class Americans. They want us to take on corporate interest and the mm-hmm. greed of the drug companies and the insurance companies. It sounds good. Let Can we just all acknowledge that there's a reason people flirt with the idea of socialism? It, it sounds good. But there is a, a ingrained within the American spirit. I mean, go, going back to just de Tocqueville's tour of, of the country, there's there's a, a there still is an individualism within the American spirit. Now it's fading among younger people, but younger people are least likely to vote. As Chuck Todd pointed out to, to Bernie Sanders, he, he can't get people other than these young people to vote for him. And, you know, occasionally uh, those young people actually grow up and start earning money. And they're like, you know what? By God, I don't want the government to take this from me. And yet Bernie Sanders position is that the government gives you everything. Remember the Democrats in, in uh, what their, their last convention, the government's the only thing we all belong to? Remember Elizabeth Warren when she was first campaigning for office, talking about the factory owner, that, that he didn't build that. It was the government that actually built it. It was the, the collective self that built his factory. Intuitively, still a lot of Americans reject that. And the Democrats understand it. And the Democrats are starting to get really concerned about Bernie. But there's nothing they can do because they they changed their rules to accommodate Bernie Sanders. The Democrats, after 2016, changed their rules so that Bernie Sanders would have a fighting chance this time, even though he's not a member of the Democratic Party. And now that Bernie looks like he may be able to pull it off, they're in an absolute meltdown over this absolute meltdown, and they're the ones who've been accommodating. You know, the Democrats did not have to let Bernie Sanders take control of their party. They could have said, you're not one of us, you can't run under our platform, but nope, nope, they did, and now they're panicked that he may actually win. I don't know that he will. Bloomberg has a ton of money out there, but the problem is uh, Bernie Sanders supporters are true believers, and there are a lot of Democrats out there who don't like Bernie Sanders, but they're loathe loathe the idea that Mike Bloomberg could come in and buy the nomination from him. They may let him to stop Trump, but they're in a real conundrum, and it's actually really funny to watch. 
Now, the phone number here, I will take your phone calls. I've been bad about giving out the number today. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, 877-973-7425. Happy to take your number, happy to take your phone calls. We got a lot more to talk about here, including the nastiness that is coming in the Leffler-Collins fight. It is Eric Erickson, and you can call the show if you like, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This, uh, y'all, uh, I wasn't going to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it. Uh, In 2016, Jiang Jisung's seven-year-old daughter, Neon, died of an incurable disease. Three years later, the South Korean mother was reunited with Neon in a virtual world created for a televised documentary. On Thursday, the Monwa Broadcasting Corporation shared a clip from the special documentary titled I Met You on its YouTube page with the footage cutting between the real world and the virtual one. In the former setting, Jang stands in front of a massive green screen while wearing both a VR headset and what appears to be some sort of haptic gloves. In the latter, she and her daughter talk, hold hands, and even have a birthday party complete with a lit cake the virtual reality reunion is extremely emotional yang appears to begin crying the moment she sees her virtual daughter while the rest of the family watch the reunion unfold with somber expressions and the occasional tear maybe it's a real paradise yang said of the reunion i met neon who called me with a smile for a very short time but it's a very happy time. I think I've had a dream. I've always, this is one of those like black mirror or twilight zone episodes where it goes bad. The, this, this is just this, this gives I, yo, I got chills talking about this. I never get chills. This gives me the heebie jeebies. You, you, you've got a six year old dead child and you recreate the child in virtual reality. So mom can hang out. Of it. Do you know where mom's going to start hanging out all the time? This is not a good th- this is not a good thing. Let let the dead die. Uh oh my goodness gracious. And and this is the world we've gotten. You know, technology can be a very good thing. It can. But technology oftentimes uh it, 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 it's used and it's it's so poorly thought out. Many of you right now I can feel the disturbance of the force. Many of you are out there right now thinking of that line from Jurassic uh, Park with, with you were so busy asking if we could do it, you didn't ask whether you should do it. Uh, Malcolm, what, what's his name's line there? Yeah. Um, oh, this this is not a good thing to to create a virtual reality world that you can enter and hang out with your dead child. That's Psychologically, that's got to do something to the mom. And, and the dad who was watching it on a screen, dad, the dad chose not to go into the virtual reality world. Um, you know, everyone always talks about Aldous Huxley and, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, there are different books, Brave New World by what's his name? And then, then Huxley's, um, or no, Huxley was Brave New World and it was Orwell in 1984 and Huxley actually won 
even though we're obsessed with Orwell in 1984. We, we all sit around at screens and we're numbed and given entertainment to distract us from the world around us. And we, we have reached that brave new world, and it is not a place that any of us should want to go when we are letting mothers hang out with their dead children in virtual reality and reunions of some kind. That's, that is a dangerous thing to do. Now, when we come back, we got to move into some Georgia news with the fight between Leffler and Collins. Just a quick time out from the show to thank one of my favorite sponsors, one of the products I use on a daily basis multiple times. That would be my Quip electric toothbrush. And I really am a customer, and I really was before they started advertising for me. That's the way I like to do these ads. I like to endorse a product I'm already using, and Quip is one that I use, my wife uses, and both of my kids use. And we've used it before I started advertising. They make great electric toothbrushes. They're not the super fancy expensive ones, and you get a better clean. Why do you get a better clean? Well, because the quip you brush your teeth for two minutes and it pulses every 30 seconds so you know how to reposition it in your mouth and for those two minutes dennis wants you to brush your teeth for two minutes you get a great clean with great sonic vibrations that really get your teeth clean and you know i've got invisalign braces so i've got those attachments a lot of stuff gets stuck in them and behind the little attachments and with the quip i can always clean my teeth the way they need to be clean it is a great toothbrush and it's not going to break the bank it's just well made you can tell it's made by dennis and designers together if you go to getquip.com slash erickson right now you can get a quip and you can start with a brush head refill subscription where every three months they send you a new brush head they even include a battery and you get your first refill for free that's your first refill free at getquip.com slash erickson it's g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com slash erickson e-r-i-c-k-s-o-n quip the good habits company i'm old welcome <laughs> It's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. Oh, my goodness. Uh, my buddy Luke Rogers up in Nashville just noted that Mario Kart 64 turns 23 today. I'm old. This is, oh, wow. Mario Kart 64. It's 23 years old that game came out. This is terrible. Although my kid, my 11-year-old plays it. Uh, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number is, what is our phone number? 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, if you want to be a part of the program. Uh, if you're just tuning in, I mentioned in the last hour, Kelly Leffler has received the Susan B. Anthony list uh, uh, endorsement. The SBA list is a uh, conservative advocacy group that supports pro-life women. This is very notable because Leffler, um, the, the SBA list blasted Governor Kemp for picking Leffler. They they were not fans of it. They pulled out all the stops to try to get it for Doug Collins. Uh, Doug Collins did not get it. Kelly Leffler got it. And now the uh, SBA list is coming out for Leffler against Collins. That's actually a really big deal. Uh, and it is a it's a big deal because Collins is kind of a stalwart champion of the president. He's got a lot of people coming to support him. But you got SBA, you've got the Club for Growth, and you've got uh, the National Republican Senatorial Committee all coming out for Kelly Leffler right now. And uh, the Collins people are uh, in a bind in in lashing out uh, deservedly so. By the way, listen. 
Uh, Doug Collins very much wanted the Senate appointment. He didn't get it. Uh, he's got a lot of people around him who wanted it, including people in the White House who wanted him to have it. There are a lot of you listening right now who wanted him to have it, but he didn't get it, and he's going to make a fight for it. The problem at this point with him making a fight for it is that it's going to cause Republicans uh, to expend resources that they don't necessarily need to expend. And the president has said he's going to come up with something. Both sides are reading it as the other side cutting a deal to get them out of the way, uh, that that he'll appoint somebody, he'll appoint Collins uh, to a federal job somewhere, a federal bench where he's got a job for life, or he'll appoint Leffler somewhere where she's good. The problem is that if the president win re-election this year, if they're only appointed to an executive branch position, well, then they're done in January. So I don't know how he's going to figure out a way to get this done, but the governor definitely wants to cut a deal somehow. And or the the president wants to cut a deal somehow. Uh, And the rumor in Washington, I can tell you, uh, the informed rumor in Washington is the reason you're seeing the club come out and the NRSC come out and the Susan B. Anthony list come out is that the president is being told by Mitch McConnell and others that he's got to go with Leffler in the Senate and find somewhere else for Doug Collins. Whether that holds, I don't know, but. Let me just say I, I have incredibly well-plugged-in sources on this front. And the lobbying effort on the president, uh, despite the efforts of some, is very much geared towards the president backing Leffler and not Collins in the Senate and finding somewhere to put Collins uh, so that uh, they can be secure with Leffler. And, and the, 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 the commentary out there on this is multifaceted, but... Primarily, it is she had his back during impeachment, and yes, Doug Collins did as well, uh, but Doug Collins was using that to to position himself for the Senate. Leffler came in uh, unknown and defended the president and even went after Mitt Romney. And then the other one, and this is the bigger one, is that Leffler will do well in the suburbs and that as long as Collins is, is in the race and pressuring her, it will be hard for her to distinguish herself in the suburbs while she's trying to battle for the base. And if the president wants to do well in the suburbs, he benefits by having Leffler on the ballot. That, that is the thinking. That is the spin, at least. And you need to understand this. This, this is the spin. This is not, the, this is not uh, an accurate portrayal of what's actually happening. It's just the spin of what's happening. And you do need to understand that this is the spin of what's happening. We'll see where it goes. Now, I want to shift a little bit further to Georgia. There is a uh, aggravation in the legislature over the governor's budget. Brian Kemp, of course, wants some pretty significant budget cuts. The Speaker of the House pushing back on a number of those budget cuts. But James Salzer is a writer at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and he knows the budget better than most members of the legislature. Uh, Salzer... I mean, this is what he's done for a living for most of most of Salzer's life as a reporter. He has uh, gone deep into Georgia politics and the budgetary process. And I want to read you the headline because it's a summation of remember, this is the spin against the governor's budget. They're draconian cuts that are going to hurt poor people and people in rural areas. Here, here's the headline from the AJC. Despite cries of extreme budget cuts, 
Georgians won't feel many of them. Huh? Critics decry Governor Brian Kemp's proposed state spending cuts as extreme and draconian measures that would reduce services with warnings of severe problems, including more suicides and fewer food safety inspections. Have you noticed, by the way, just as an aside, whenever there are budget cuts, the people who don't want the budget cut go to for the most extreme scenario. Yes, there are actually people arguing that if the state of Georgia cuts its budget, more people will commit suicide and your food will be contaminated. That That's the actual argument being made by people. Oh, God help us. Some of them, it may impact state services, these cuts, but his budget plan also includes line after line of mundane cuts most Georgians won't notice, the kind of things agencies commonly do when a governor asks them to spend less. Agencies would save millions by not sending as many people to conferences. One department is saving big money eliminating its landline phones for employees with state-funded cell phones. Some are saving on rent and technology changes charges. About one-third of the savings Kemp is expected, expecting would come from eliminating vacant jobs, including some that agencies might badly need to fill. Others have been unfilled for a long time, and agencies have said they can get by without. Even some of the cuts that have been high-profile, such as a reduction to county public health departments, may not turn out to be as troubling as lawmakers thought because there's another pot of money for basic programs, such as immunization, that isn't being reduced. So the governor ordered state agencies, back in August, he asked them to cut a 4% budget cut, 6% next year. Uh, he wants them to prepare for an economic slowdown. He wants to, to reassess money for some of his priorities. Most particularly, the governor wants to do a $2,000 pay raise for teachers, and he gave them part of the pay raise last year. He wants the rest of it this year. Three-fourths of the budget, uh, money that goes to schools, colleges, healthcare programs, were exempt from reduction. So money that goes to K-12 through schools isn't going to be affected by the cuts. Money that goes to colleges isn't going to be affected by the cuts. Money that goes to Medicaid isn't going to be affected by the cuts. And money that goes to transportation isn't going to be affected by the cuts. So what are they going to do? Uh, privately, legislators are accusing some agency directors of soft-pedaling the impact of the proposed cuts. Lawmakers have expressed concerns about spending reductions in areas of mental health and substance abuse and rural economic development and agriculture research and food inspections. They wonder whether there will be room and programs to help Georgians in crisis, whether the criminal justice overhaul they supported and funded will be shorted, and whether criminal defendants will have a public defender to handle their case. Naturally, of course, Ralston is the one leading the charge against the budget. So how does this stack up? What, what would the governor actually save? G give you a sense of this. Uh, his cuts would save $200 million this year and $300 million next year. During the recession, revenue dropped 20% in 2008 and 2010, uh, or more than $3 billion, and cutbacks led to 200,000 teachers and state employees being furloughed, rounds of layoffs, elimination of programs, uh, and there are all sorts of people saying this is draconian, this is draconian, and, and this is bad, and they're not really. It, 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 most people aren't going to—I'm sorry, but if you're calling a state employee and you're calling a cell phone instead of a landline phone, you're not really affected by that. 
if you're going to a government agency in an, an unfilled spot, uh, they're minus an employee because the spot hasn't been filled and they're not going to fill the spot, you're not really affected by that. There's no one there to begin with. And the fear scenario here that, that somehow your food is not going to be inspected because there's currently not a food inspector and now the state's not going to hire a food inspector. So is, is your food not being inspected now? Because there are certainly food inspectors inspecting your food. It's just they're not hiring additional ones. It's all a bunch of fear and gobbledygook from a bunch of people who have a vested interest in this. And, and here's let's just let let's do the realistic numbers here, the realistic analysis. How did Brian Kemp win his election? Anybody? Anybody? Brian Kemp won his election by generating a mass turnout of rural Georgia to offset Stacey Abrams in the suburbs and metro Atlanta, in the metropolitan areas of the state, uh, Savannah, Augusta, Albany, Macon, Valdosta, and the like. He mobilized rural Georgia. And rural Georgia turned out for Brian Kemp. Do you really believe that Brian Kemp is now going to punish rural Georgia? Do, do, do any of you actually believe that? Because apparently there are people in the Gold Dome, under the Gold Dome, who actually believe that somehow Brian Kemp is now going to punish rural Georgia, the people who brought him to the dance, so to speak. He's not going to do that. These are scare scenarios for pet projects. In particular is Governor Nathan Deal's prison reforms and criminal justice reforms. See, they're upset with Brian Kemp for making a big deal about gangs. The reality is Georgia does have a gang problem, and you got a bunch of people who think that Georgia doesn't have a gang problem because prior administrations said there was no gang problem, even though there is objective evidence there is. And so when they hear Brian Kemp going after gangs, they're afraid, oh, oh, he's going to he's going to scuttle all of our criminal justice reforms that, that we campaigned on. It's their signature initiatives. He's not going to. And yet there's a lot of fear there. Now, for their part, the, the legislature's gone home. They've taken a big recess. They need to reset. They're not happy with the governor's priorities. And they want to reset. They want to have some say. But here ultimately is the problem. And it comes from a quote from the Speaker of the House uh, or a, a paraphrase of the Speaker of the House saying that the governor is trying to get power uh, back in the governor's office that decades ago was removed. Essentially, uh, the, the governor is doing a power grab. And members of the legislature led by the Speaker of the House are opposed to the governor's power grab. They don't want a more powerful governor. Really what it is is they want to be powerful, and they don't want the governor to have that power. They don't want the governor to be able to set his budget. They want to be able to do it themselves, and they want to tell the governor no. And ultimately what you have is a lot of people who are Casey Cagle supporters, and I don't mean this against Casey Cagle, but against his supporters in the legislature, a lot of them expected Casey was going to be the governor. And they made deals, and they planned accordingly, and that race was upended, and now they blame President Trump. Even though Brian Kemp was ahead in early voting in the runoff, uh, he really was going to win even without uh, Donald Trump's endorsement. They blame Donald Trump. They think that Brian Kemp is some sort of usurper. They really don't like the fact that he's in there. They don't like the fact that he picked Kelly Loeffler. They don't like the fact that he's not beholden to them. They don't like the fact that he's not one of them. He wasn't in the state legislature. And so they've got to take him down a peg if they can. 
And this isn't just Ralston. He may be the ringleader here, but it's not just him. It's it's a number of members of the legislature want to bring the governor down low in large part because they didn't want him to get elected in the first place. They wanted the other guy who was from the legislature. They forget that Kemp was in the legislature, but he dared to go to the executive. And so they think he wants too much power and they need to humble him. That's what this is about. It is an exercise, not in actual principle, and it is not an exercise in actually saving money or cutting the budget. It is an exercise in humbling your political opponent and making them know that they're not as powerful as they think. And in the process, the fiscal health of the state, conservative policies and the like are all being held hostage by a legislature that feels way more compelled to need to do something to rein in Brian Kemp for daring to actually be a conservative governor than to actually get anything done. Oh, why not? I I just got to. Well, welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. A man in a parking lot outside Ollie's Bargain Outlet in Macon, Georgia, was irate and screaming the other day, and he had, as a Bibb County Sheriff's Report added, a big knot on his forehead The angry man, 44, told a cop who'd been called to the scene uh, that another guy jumped on him. The other guy, 30, was also irate and screaming and had a swollen lip. The second man said the older fellow and the older fellow's girlfriend started fighting with him. This was at a barbershop. Fight at a barbershop. An argument ensued. Let's see. The older man explained he'd been at a barber shop in the stop, sh- shopping center had stepped outside to smoke. He said it was then the 30-year-old came out and asked for money. An argument ensued. The younger man hit the older man with a trash can, and then a fight broke out. Uh, all of them refused medical help, and they were cited for fighting. Uh, fun times in middle Georgia, is it not? I, I, I got this, this, this. I get an email from different news outlets on what are the big news stories, and, well, there was your big news story, according to the Macon Telegraph from Middle Georgia. Fight broke out at a barbershop. Yeah. God bless him. You know, so uh, on the budget issue, the president is unveiling his budget. It's a four-point-some-odd trillion-dollar budget. And you know what the scarce headlines are immediately, that social services are going to be cut I mean, you see Democrats online right now saying that this is this is going to get him. I, you know, it really everything. First of all, all of you, I, I've got no audience because all of you died from tax cuts and net neutrality and the repeal of Obamacare that didn't actually repeal Obamacare. You're all dead. I mean, the, the left told me that you're all dead. You, you got killed because they got rid of the individual mandate. And then those of you who were still left, you died because of the tax cuts. And then any of you who remained when they got rid of net neutrality, which half of you don't even know, you all de- you're all dead. I got no audience. I'm just talking into the wind. You know, I, I was listening. So my buddy Philip works for me. He told me I needed to read some book called The War of Art or some such. And I decided I was driving back from Birmingham. I thought, you know what? I'll, I, everybody I know starts doing this book on tape thing or, or audio audible or whatever. So I decided I'll, I'll listen to a book. It's not on tape. It's it's on my phone. Um, and, and so I listened to the audio book. And one of the things the guy noted is, is if you're in a job 
where you're the last person on the planet and there's no one else around and you would still show up for work the next day, uh, then it's not just a you're, you're a professional now. You're not an amateur and you got a passion for it. And I'm, I, I, all of you are dead and I still show up for work every day. Because I love the job, but you're all dead. And and apparently there may be a handful of people left and they're all going to die because of President Trump's budget. What is remarkable here, and the reason I bring this up is because I've seen the online commentary about this, Democrats, this is going to be how you defeat the president. Make it about his budget cuts. Do you know the last time that a president's budget actually got passed? I believe it was Bill Clinton's balanced budget in 1998. No budget has ever passed since. I'm not making that up. They do continuing resolutions. They do budget blueprints and they make adjustments, but they don't actually do budgets anymore. They just they just continue the spending and, and they incrementally raise stuff. And yet the Democrats are, are lighting themselves on fire today over the president's supposed budget cuts that, oh my goodness gracious, the, the president's going to cut welfare spending in this country. And by the way, there's only so much he can cut because Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, they're all kind of fixed budget priorities. They're on autopilot. And the president says he wants to reform them, except he doesn't really want to reform them per se. I suspect someone's going to try to convince him to do private market uh, fund, excuse me, private market funding for Social Security where people can invest now in the stock market, and that'll be their Social Security. Whether or not he actually does, I don't know. But the fact is it's not in his budget. His budget is its that he wants to send someone to Mars or at least to the moon. He wants to pay for more nukes, and the media's having a meltdown. In another week, this will be gone and forgotten as well because budgets never get passed. It's always a big, spectacular rollout. But what's laughable are the Democrats others say, oh, we can beat him now. We can beat him with his budget. They haven't figured out yet how to beat this president, and some of them are hoping Mike Bloomberg will figure it out for them. More on that when we come back. Can we deviate from, well, everything I wanted to do? <laughs> um, we'll get we'll get back into raw politics and in in news headlines and and the like. But you know, I I don't like to just do news and and politics. So there's other stuff out there in the world that we should know about culturally and. And faith and culture and all that stuff. I, I want to go back to, well, this. You you know it. You saw it. it. It's still being talked about. It's amazing. This and the Iowa caucus are about the only two things that still percolate in the media. It's this Google ad that was played during the Super Bowl. How to not forget. Older man with Alzheimer's early Alzheimer's, hey Google, trying to remember his deceased wife. Of me and Loretta. <laughs> remember? Loretta hated my mustache. <laughs> remember? Loretta loved going to Alaska and scallops. Show me photos from our anniversary. Remember, she always snorted when she laughed. Play our favorite movie. Casablanca. And then it goes through all the things he told him. Loretta used to hum to show tunes. Her favorite flowers were tulips. She had the most beautiful handwriting. 
she used to say tickled pink. She always said, don't miss me too much and get out of the dang Remember, house. Remember, I'm the luckiest man in the world. Come on, boy. I mean, it's a beautiful, gut-wrenching commercial. Uh, this this old man trying to remember his his wife. There, there's been some speculation that maybe his Alzheimer's or not. I, I, I said that. The ad doesn't doesn't say. Uh, and it's it's a it is a beautiful ad and how technology can help you. You know, I, I so I, I'm an Apple guy. I'm not a Google person. Um, I don't. I, I, Google's got purposes, but I, I'm a Mac guy. I'm an Apple guy, and he, Apple has done an amazing job with facial recognition technology. And every once in a while, Apple will send me a little uh, push message on my phone and say, "There's a new memory for you," and it's it's my kids are doing something. And my my iPhone automatically puts together a montage of the kids. Uh, for example, we were at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, I guess, when my 10-year-old was now like five. And it put together the sweet little montage of, of the kids. And, I mean, it was a tearjerker. My wife and I both nearly cried watching it. And, and you see this Google ad, and, and it's it's so sweet, and it's remarkable what technology can do. Although I think that that most people in that age demographic would have a hard time with it. I mean, good Lord, I got to be tech service for, for my mom sometimes. And uh, there's malware on her computer somehow and tried to fix that. I, uh, it makes you lose your religion. I love you, mom. But uh, tech support and, and with my in-laws as well, I'm, I'm tech support when there's a problem with the iPhone or some such. So what, how regular someone in, in that demographic can use that technology, I don't know. And now I'm going to ruin it all for you. And I'm sorry, but I'm going there. I'm going to ruin it all for you. We've got this very... Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be ruining your Monday morning. Um, <laughs> we have this very poignant Google ad of this old man. His wife is dead. And he's not only trying to remember her, but he wants to see the old pictures. And uh, he tells Google where they went on their their honeymoon in Alaska and puts all that stuff in. You and I both know darn well that the next time this man gets on Google, he's going to see an ad for that place in Alaska. (laughs) You and I both know they're going to monetize the memories of his dead wife. That's what's actually happening here. Google doesn't take this information and just stores it up for you. Google puts it in the algorithm about you. Uh-oh, this man's missing his wife. Hey, let's sell him tickets to the local art house showing of Casablanca. It was his wife's favorite movie. We can make some money off of him. Here are the things that that Google says it, it remembered. Loretta used to hum show tunes. Hey, here's a John Williams compiled album of all your favorite show tunes, old man. (laughs) You know it's going to happen. Loretta's favorite flowers were tulips. How about a colorblends.com subscription for tulip bulbs every year, old man? Loretta had the most beautiful handwriting. Here's a class on how to improve your handwriting and learn calligraphy from Craftsy. <laughs> Am I, is it awful of me to think this? You know it's going to happen. Loretta used to say tickled pink. Find out these favorite phrases from Dolly Parton. You'll be tickled pink. <laughs> Loretta used to say don't miss me too much and get out of the dang house. Here are 10 ways to get out of the house. 
by Google.com. You know it's going to happen. I mean, it's such a good ad until you start thinking about it. Google's not doing this stuff for free. Google's going to make money somewhere. And you know where Google's going to make money? In the search algorithms to target you. It's what they do. They're going to be targeting this poor old man now for the rest of his life. And, you know, so here's the thing. So the Google algorithm has gotten so good now and knows so much. It's not just online advertising. It's offline advertising as well. For example, there are people listening to this program right now around the state of Georgia who, when this show launched, got postcards in the mail telling them to tune into their local station, whether it's WRGA or WCHM or uh, WMAC or, or uh, WGA, wherever you are in the state. You got a postcard in the mail, some of you, uh, telling you, hey, it's the Eric Erickson Show. It's new. It's about Georgia. Tune in to the station. And I did that by going into a, a program I have that cross-references Google to addresses to a mail file that I have to find people like them who are interested in conservative talk radio and tend to like their local talk station. And they all got postcards in the mail. And it didn't cost me a ton of money to do, but it was great little PR for, for both the, the station that, that took a chance on, on putting the show on and also on the show to get people to listen. So if you're on your Google Home and you're telling it that you like conservative talk radio, you like Eric Erickson, you like Rush Limbaugh, you, guess what? I'm able to monetize that data. And you're thinking, Google, you're so sweet to, of, to, to put all this stuff in a database somewhere so when I am old and forgetful, I can say, hey, what was that show that I told you I like? And Google will tell you that show while it's selling you ads. And it goes out of the house now. It's not just online. It can it can help people target your mailbox as well. So you're getting a postcard from me in the mail advertising my show. You're getting mail pieces for from different companies. So uh, one of the things that I like uh, this this is this is pretentious, Eric. Here you'll have to forgive me. I like to have stuff that not everybody else has. And the reason is because when I was growing up. In Dubai, it was all American families, and we would all go home during the summer. We would all buy stuff, and we would all come back, and everybody always had the same stuff. Whatever was trendy and fashionable at the time, I hate trends, and I hate fashion. Because if you're a trendy person and you follow the fashion trends, guess what? At some point, you're going to be out of the trends. So just buy classically styled stuff, and you'll never go out of style. That's my philosophy. Well, you know, I don't just want every, every other name brand product up there that everybody has. And the, the wonderful thing about the Internet now is that I can go out and I can find uh, products that I like and I can be a trendsetter even though I'm not trying to be. Like, for example, there's if you're a guy, uh, this this is not for the ladies, if you're a guy, uh, you, you know, Lululemon or whatever it used to be, that they make uh, athletic wear for, for men, but there's a great company called Roan. R-H-O-N-E. It makes fantastic athletic wear. I love their shorts. Their workout gear is fantastic. Uh, the owner of the company is a, a fantastic guy. Or, or if Mizzen and Maine dress shirts, I love them. They're great. 
Peter Millar, their their pants, they're a little more common, but it's it, it's nice stuff, and and you go out and not everybody's wearing the stuff, and and I like it uh, because unlike the hipsters who all go out and grow beards and start wearing flannel and look exactly alike, I got my own personal style, and I like this stuff, and it, it's not trendy stuff. It's not going to go out of style. But here's the thing. So I, I get online and I Google this stuff, and not only do you see the ads everywhere, but suddenly you start getting stuff in your mailbox. I've now started getting catalogs in the mail at home from clothing stores that are, are small clothing stores with, with small amount of inventory uh, that are unique. And some of it I like, a lot of it I don't, a lot of it is garbage. But they know it because I've been doing the Google searches for different stuff. And now they know, hey, this guy is looking for pants on Google. I'm going to send him a catalog of our pants. And it's some company from London. And I'm too fat for their pants. They, they clearly haven't figured that out from Google. I have, I, I, you know, so I've, I've started the whole diet plan thing because I've realized that that I, I'm reaching that that category of size where suddenly I, I, I can't go to the, the mall and just buy clothes anymore because my waist is going to get too big. So i got to cut back on the beer and pizza diet, among other things. And did you realize, just as an aside, so this whole macro thing, I've had a bunch of people tell me you got to do your macros, your proteins, your fat, and your carbs. It's telling me I got to eat more than I've ever eaten in my life to lose weight. How is this possible? How is this possible? I, I mean, I always assumed that you just stopped eating and you lose weight, and you do. You start to look like you're from some drought-stricken African country, but you you lose weight. But now I'm I'm on this thing, and it's telling me I got to eat protein. Y'all, I think I could eat a chicken breast every hour on the hour, and it would still tell me I'm not getting enough protein. How is this possible? I don't understand this whole macro thing. And it's it's I've only been doing it for a couple days, and it's taken the joy out of eating. I mean, I'm going to have a Caesar salad with grilled chicken for lunch today, and it's telling me I got to eat more. How is that possible? But nonetheless, so you could do all of the stuff, all the stuff. It's a miracle of technology. I, I can do this little app and it tells me, oh, you had this for lunch today. That means that for supper tonight, you need to adjust and have this much protein and this many carbs and this much fat. And, and no, you can't have that beer. It's water only. It's the prison diet for you today. And you go on Google and you start looking and then they start selling you the ads. But it's not just you and me. It's old dude remembering his dead wife in, in the, the sweetheart ad that made everybody cry at, at the Super Bowl. They're targeting that guy, too. And he doesn't even know it. He's going to ruin, wipe out his life savings, taking the memory cruise to Alaska in honor of Loretta, his dead wife, because he started seeing the ads everywhere. And he's decided it must be God telling me to take a cruise. No, it's Google selling your market research. It's not God. He's got nothing to do with it. You're getting scammed by the tech company that's monetized you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to take the joy out of it, but it's the truth. You know, my mother-in-law was on a flight back from Arizona a while back, and she used her American Express card on the plane because, you know, Delta doesn't take cash on the planes anymore, had to use, had to use her card. She got this this um, basket, and it had, like, cheeses and stuff. She was hungry. They weren't serving a meal on the plane for, from Arizona. She started seeing ads all over the Internet for the cheese. How'd they do that? Well, they, they monetized her credit card swipe on what she purchased on Delta, I would imagine. And she started seeing those ads on Facebook and Google. 
And then you got the people who are convinced that Facebook is listening to you with their microphones. Uh, my sister is convinced. In fact, we were having a um, we were having a conversation by text message, and my sister started seeing ads a- a- on Facebook for the stuff we were texting about. And I, even I'm a little suspicious. And I know the folks at Facebook. I know them very well, and they, they deny it. But I'm telling you, it's some shady stuff out there that's going on now. Is they they monetize us and they they figure us out and, and they they do data deep dives because they want to sell us stuff. And it's not all bad. I discovered this Roan company and I love their products because of it. I've discovered a lot of other great products and, and services and companies online. Snake River Farms Meat. I would have never discovered Snake River or E3 Meat. In um in Kansas, I would have never discovered them, but for the internet targeting me, knowing I like to cook, I like to grill, I got a big green egg. But my goodness gracious, they're also doing this to the poor old man who just wants Google to remember his dead wife. And oh, they're remembering his dead wife so that the ghost of her commercialism can haunt him for Christmas this year. It's it's something you gotta think about while you're crying at the Google ad that these people they want to make money off this old man, and they leave that part out of the commercial because that would be the part that would kind of creep you out. But it's happening. You can, and I didn't send out a recipe. I got so busy getting ready for that NPR thing. My apologies. But, I, I, you know, I do like to send out recipes. I'll find you one this week. I haven't cooked a lot, though, because I've been so sick. I, I haven't had the energy to cook. I'm finally starting to get to the point where I feel normal again, and now I've passed it off to my Poor 14-year-old, she's home sick from school today with what I had. I, I blame it on Los Angeles. Uh, you know, Chris Burns got it too, and and apparently several of the other people who were at the Bill Maher show uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we all got it. Uh, and and now I'm spreading it. It's like the coronavirus, except not. Um, man, y'all, the coronavirus. I, I actually want to spend a little bit of time on this when we come back. There's a report out that it has hit North Korea. And that the North Korean government is in an absolute panic about it because they don't have the healthcare resources to combat it. In fact, they canceled their annual military parade. Now, just a few weeks ago, Kim Jong-un was saying that he was going to debut new weapons and missiles at their annual uh, military parade. They have a big military parade every year on the anniversary of the founding of the country's armed forces. And this is the 72nd anniversary. It was going to be a big spectacle. Uh, he, Kim Jong-un presided over the procession last year with all the latest hardware. He was going to do it again, unveiling what he said was going to be a new strategic weapon. And they canceled the parade. They have sealed the border, at least they thought they sealed the border with China, but they haven't. Uh, there is a Chinese city uh, on the edge of North Korea, on the Korean-Chinese border, and North Korean citizens will sneak over there across the lines to trade because they're starving in North Korea and don't have goods. Well, some people apparently went over there and came back with the coronavirus. I suspect they're dead by now. Uh, and I don't mean that cruelly. It's just given that the North Koreans exterminate their people for breaking the rules, I would imagine that these people have been exterminated. But uh, it was enough to spread it. And there are people, there are reports, internal reports, of people dropping like flies. And that's problematic. And same thing in China as well. 
I want to get to that when we come back. Also, you should know there actually is some breaking news on the China front, not the coronavirus. Let me find the report. Uh, da, 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 da. It just happened a little while ago. It was breaking news. Yes, the remember the Equifax hacking. Turns out the Equifax or Equifax hacking was done by the Chinese military. Uh, the Justice Department has indicted a number of Chinese uh, people associated with the Chinese military for the hack of Equifax and getting all of your credit card data. That is, it's interesting and also shows you just what a big deal it is uh, that the Chinese are continuing to do these sorts of things in the United States. Mike Pompeo talked to the Republican governors, or not the Republican, the National Governors Association the other day. Look, I know it's 2.30 on a Saturday afternoon. There were lots of good things we could do. I hope you will all take on board what I've said today. You all have important missions leading your states. These are complex, difficult jobs. You have the task to create jobs and opportunity in your state for your people and attract human capital investment that undergirds our prosperity. It's a tough job. And you get curveballs every day from all across the place. But don't lose sight of the competition from China that's already present in your state. Let's all rise to the occasion and protect our security, our economy, indeed all that we hold dear, all of those freedoms. It's what leaders must do. It's what we do as Americans. God will bless each and every one of you, each of your states in the United States of America. Thank you for letting me be with you here this afternoon. You know, he warned them that the Chinese have developed profiles of each of them as to whether or not they they may be uh, interested in collaborative with China or hostile to China. He's warning them. And and now there's this uh, Wall Street Journal headline, four members of China's military indicted for massive Equifax breach disclosed in 2017, hack into the credit reporting company, compromised data on roughly 145 million Americans. Four members of China's military have been indicted by the U.S. government on charges of hacking. A federal grand jury in Atlanta returned a nine-count indictment last week that accused members of China's People's Liberation Army of conspiring to steal reams of data. And then there's this also from the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, the scientist and the spy Apparently, an unusual FBI investigation has discovered that the Chinese haven't just been stealing our industrial secrets. They've been stealing corn seed from Iowa to boost their farm crops. Just a quick time out from the show to thank one of my favorite sponsors, one of the products I use on a daily basis multiple times. That would be my Quip electric toothbrush. And I really am a customer, and I really was before they started advertising for me. That's the way I like to do these ads. I like to endorse a product I'm already using, and Quip is one that I use, my wife uses, and both of my kids use, and we've used it before I started advertising. They make great electric toothbrushes. They're not the super fancy expensive ones, and you get a better clean. Why do you get a better clean? Well, because the quip you brush your teeth for two minutes and it pulses every 30 seconds so you know how to reposition it in your mouth and for those two minutes dennis wants you to brush your teeth for two minutes you get a great clean with great sonic vibrations that really get your teeth clean and you know i've got invisalign braces so i've got those attachments a lot of stuff gets stuck in them and behind the little attachments and with the quip i can always clean my teeth the way they need to be clean it is a great toothbrush and it's not going to break the bank it's just well made you can tell it's made by dennis and designers together if you go to getquip.com slash erickson right now you can get a quip and you can start with a brush head refill subscription where every three months they send you a new brush head they even include a battery 
and you get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash Erickson. It's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, Quip, the Good Habits Company. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Thank you for joining me. I just got an email uh, during the last break uh, from listener Mike, who's listening in the Atlanta area. And he says, uh, asks, uh, does Bloomberg think he's above everybody else by not debating with the other Democrats. No, um, this is this is one of the, the silly, dumb things the Democrats did this time is they put criteria on who could be on the debate stage. And one of the criteria for being on the debate stage was you had to raise a certain amount of money from the grassroots. You had to raise a certain dollar figure uh, or, or I, I should say a, a, a proportion of of the money raised had to come from low dollar donors. And I th- want to say it was like 20%, 15, 20% of the money of the Democrats on the debate stage had to come from small dollar donors, meaning it had to come from uh, $100 or less or 250 or less, I think was the criteria. Well, Bloomberg is not taking donations. You, you you can't financially support the Bloomberg campaign. So it's not that Bloomberg doesn't want to debate. It's that the Democrats prohibited him from debating. They, they wouldn't let him on stage when he entered because he wasn't taking money. So the Democrats have now gone back and have reconfigured their debate rules uh, to get rid of that requirement so that Bloomberg can now debate. And now there are Democrats upset about it because they waited until all the the women, save for Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, and all the black people are out of the off the debate. No more Kamala Harris and no more Cory Booker. Now that they're gone, the Democrats are saying, "Oh, now we'll change the rules for the old white guy." They got some problems. Here's Jen Psaki, worked for the Obama administration. I think his one of his press secretaries at the State Department or some such. 49% was about where Barack Obama was when he was going for re-election at the beginning of, of, of 2012, George Bush in, in 2004. And in this kind of a polarized environment, that may be enough. That's right. It may be. And we and Democrats should have their eyes open about that. I mean, looking back at this week, um, you know, the Iowa Democratic Party got a lot of attention for good reason uh, for the disaster that was. But President Trump is at 49 percent, as you said, watching the State of the Union. I also was struck by the fact that he was trying to tell a story about his appeal to African-Americans across the country. I may sit here and think that's laughable, but people watching may have bought that. Some people watching may have bought that. He's a good producer, a good producer of visuals. Um, um, and he also is now empowered um, after his acquittal. So, you know, it's it's a little scary. Democrats should be a little frightened after this. Uh, yeah, Democrats should be a little frightened after all this. It's not they're they're they got some concerns, and they know they got concerns, and it's not helping now that they are fighting. I gotta I gotta find the story for you. Where's where's the story? Uh, da, 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 da. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, this is from Politico, and this is the, the the headline from Politico this morning. Straight out of House of Cards, the stage is set for a democratic democratic primary that is nasty, brutish, and long. 
it's not just the chaos in Iowa or the newly bitter tone of the campaign in New Hampshire that's to blame for the angst gripping the Democratic Party in recent days. It's the realization that the primary on Tuesday may do nothing to resolve the discord. Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, two centrists who are newly mauling each other, will move on to Nevada and South Carolina. So will Bernie Sanders, the frontrunner in New Hampshire, and Elizabeth Warren. Following the Iowa caucuses, Amy Klobuchar sent staffers to New Hampshire and Nevada. The billionaires aren't going anywhere either. Mike Bloomberg will confront all the other candidates on Super Tuesday. Tom Steyer is polling well enough in South Carolina to dispute the race there. It's straight out of House of Cards or Veep, just the level of uncertainty. Says Jay Sertakowski, a New Hampshire-based attorney and Democratic activist who co-chaired Martin O'Malley's 2016 presidential campaign. It could be a jump ball for months. Traditionally, Iowa and New Hampshire have culled unwieldy Democratic fields. This year, they're only adding to the muddle. Why? Because of Iowa. Over to you, Karen Finney. I actually think Senator Sanders will have a repeat of 2016 in which he, you know, blew us out as having worked on Hillary's campaign, blew us out of the water. Uh, I suspect he'll have the same as a, you know, neighboring state senator. But, you know, Jake, here, I just want to go back to something you were saying about what a bad week it was for Democrats. I actually think that what happened in the Iowa caucus is one of the best things that could have happened to this party. As someone who came into the, the DNC in 2005. Can't in, wait to hear this. Yes. In the <laughs> aftermath. It's time Iowa is no longer the first. Oh, it's okay, time yeah. we long, do long away okay, with yeah. caucuses. It's time we have a more diverse You disagree. Early You're process. sitting next to a winner of the Iowa caucus. PTSD. Well, although, by the way, PTSD, <laughs> Rick. No, I think we all realize that. But I was not the winner of the Iowa caucus. Because the winner of the Iowa caucus is the person who gets declared the winner at the caucus. Right. That's mm-hmm. it, someone who gets declared the winner 16 days later isn't the winner of the Iowa caucus. Because right. right. it doesn't matter. And I think that's that the, the one thing the Democrats did right was not rush out and try to get this, you know, try to get a, a decision out when they knew the numbers were bad. Uh-huh. It's become a problem for them. And everyone's starting to realize it. And they're starting to reel from it. But on top of the reeling from... The the from the process, they're starting to, as I mentioned, the first hour, get concerned with Bernie Sanders and they're starting to realize something else. The party has gone too far left. It's true. James Carville gave a um, interview to Vox.com last week and Carville, <laughs> super unflattering. By the way, I know James and Mary, uh, James Carville, Mary Mantle. In fact, I, I emailed Mary on Friday. It said, wow, James. And she emailed back. She says, what did he do? I don't pay attention to what he says to those places. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't blame her. But um, Carville, it just exploded about the left-leaning lurch of the Democratic Party and that it is going to sabotage their chances of beating Donald Trump. And according to Carville, they got to do everything possible to stop Trump and going the direction they're going with Bernie Sanders and the like is going to make it extremely difficult for them to be able to do. And even Pete Buttigieg is out there 
making this case. Yeah, you know, I, I was a little surprised Friday night that you didn't take on the issue of socialism directly, given what President Trump is going to do with that. Uh, are you concerned about that? Do you believe, and I asked Vice President Biden this question, do you believe that the Democrats can defeat Donald Trump if they have to defend socialism? I think it'll be a lot harder, but the bigger concern that I have is further dividing the country. Uh, you know, when the campaign says that either you're for a revolution or you must be for the status quo. Most of us don't see where we fit in that picture. And the irony is, at this moment, we actually have a historic American majority, uh, not just aligned around what we're against, the need to get rid of Donald Trump, but what we're for. Most Americans want higher wages, want corporations and the wealthy to pay their fair share, want universal health care, action on prescription drugs, action on climate change, gun violence. We have a historic majority that we're going to need, not just in order to win, but in order to govern, let's hold together and not blow up that American. One of the things we're seeing. Listen, the Democrats are right to be worried, but it's not just Bernie Sanders. They're so fixated on how far left Bernie Sanders is in his defense of socialism. They're not even paying attention to themselves. I mean, just consider how radical Pete Buttigieg is on a couple issues. Here he is discussing late term abortion. Then where do you stand on late term abortions? So, first of all. And I have explained this in places like Fox News, uh, where uh, folks aren't expected to be (laughs) ready to hear it. But we got to recognize the situation that is going on when you have uh, someone confronted with a choice about a late-term abortion. This is less than 1% of cases. And usually, we're talking about cases where, by definition, if it's late-term, a parent, a family, a woman is expecting to carry a pregnancy to term and then gets devastating medical news. Something about the life or health of the mother or the fetus that creates an unthinkable decision. And in those situations, what we know is that decision will not be made any better medically or morally because it is being dictated by some government official. Roe versus Wade has a framework that most Americans support. Early in pregnancy, very few restrictions. Late in pregnancy, very few exceptions. And that is the framework that the American people have been supporting and working with for more than a generation now, only to see it coming under attack by votes in state legislatures, often all male or nearly all male votes. And the time has come to trust women to make decisions for themselves. So what is his actual position on late-term abortion? Because, yeah, it's a small number. You know, some Democrats say it's a myth. It doesn't happen. He's saying it's less than 1%. And some of them are abortions of convenience. Circumstances change at the end of pregnancy. The child could live outside the womb, and the mother chooses to kill the child. And he doesn't want to take a position on that, but he does want to take a position on drug legalization, listen to how radical Pete Buttigieg, who everyone refers to as a centrist Democrat, listen to how radical he is. I want to follow up on a question uh, from the debate. Uh, you were asked by Lindsey Davis about why the marijuana possession arrest rates for black residents of South Bend is more than four times higher than the arrest rates for white residents. You admitted that you, your city was not immune to systemic racism, but I guess the question was, do you personally take responsibility, any responsibility, for that racial disparity in marijuana arrests? 
Well, all of us are implicated in these problems, and I take responsibility for everything good, bad, and indifferent that we did in our city. But I also take responsibility for the fact that arrest rates for black residents in my city on drug charges were lower than in the state and around the country. But look, that doesn't get any of us off the hook. These systemic uh, disparities and the systemic discrimination that goes on throughout our system are one of the reasons I am calling not only for us to legalize marijuana, but for us to end incarceration as a response to drug possession altogether. Not only that, we've got to look at situations as we go back through the years, uh, all the way back to the crime bill, where incarceration has done so much more harm than the offense that it was intended to deal with. And that means looking at expungements, that means a focus on reentry and ensuring that people can get back on their feet. Something else we did proactively with measures like uh, ban the box for hiring in the city of South Bend. We've got a long way to go and if there's one thing I learned as mayor, it's that this entire country needs to come to a reckoning about how the criminal legal system is barely worth the name of justice, especially when it comes to the racial disparities that it's perpetuating. Now, let's put this in perspective with what Pete Buttigieg is saying here. He wants no limits on meth and heroin. You can possess it, and he's okay with that. He wants no limits on abortion at all. He wants to banish the Electoral College. He wants to pack the Supreme Court. He said we need 15 members of the Supreme Court now. Uh, and he wants to ban guns, wants to ban guns, uh, n- no drug bans, no abortion bans, but ban all the guns and pack the Supreme Court. There, That's where Pete Buttigieg is. And he's still having trouble winning over black voters. Here's Chuck Todd grilling Pete Buttigieg. I guess the question is comes with um, when did you see these inequities in the African-American community and how quickly did you address them? I think about during your tenure, Ferguson happened. Yeah. Okay, outside of St. Louis. And when Ferguson happened, many mayors said, we got to look at our policing practices. we got to make sure our police departments look like the community yeah. that they're policing. The evidence in South Bend is questionable whether it looks like I think you make the argument that you did respond. The results don't look like uh, that. Well, why do you think that we implemented implicit bias training? Why do you think that we led the region in transparency in reporting cases of the use of force, seeing what had happened in Ferguson? Why do you think I appointed an African-American majority on the civilian board overseeing our police department? And you know what? In terms of results, use of force incidents went down. In my second term, arrest rates for black residents uh, on drug charges were lower than they were across the state and across the country. Is the record mixed? Of course it is, because the reality is so tough and so complex. And we had a lot of issues to deal with in my eighth year, just as we did in my first year. But no one can say that we were not intentional and that we do not have results to show for it. point to a mistake that you'll admit now that you you wish you handled an an incident differently, whether it's... The, the firing of the police chief, the fire chief. Is there any of these incidents you wish you could have handled differently? Yes, yeah, certainly in the way in my first few weeks when I was presented with the, uh, the situation that led me to part ways with the police chief. I would have handled that differently. It was the last time I've ever uh, uh, fired somebody who reported to me without sitting down for a face-to-face conversation. That was a lesson I learned the hard way. Yeah, so j- just so we're clear here, uh, Buttigieg managed to fire his um, fire his police chief who was black and fire his fire chief who was black uh, because of demands from white people in the community. 
And that's Joe Biden is turning that into a campaign. And it's pretty devastating, but he doesn't have the money to put it on air. He's running it online. When we come back, I got to play for you this Joe Biden ad. You, you, you're you not going to want to miss this. It is just brutal. Too bad he didn't have the money to actually run it. The phone number, want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got to get to the, the Bloomberg, uh, not the Bloomberg, the, the Biden attack on Buttigieg. Barack Obama called Joe Biden the best vice president America's ever had. But Pete Buttigieg doesn't think much of the vice president's record. Let's compare. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave healthcare to 20 million people. And when park goers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Buttigieg have taken on tough fights. Under threat of a nuclear Iran, Joe Biden helped to negotiate the Iran deal. And under threat of disappearing pets, Buttigieg negotiated lighter licensing regulations on pet chip scanners. We're electing a president. What you've done matters yeah a pr- pretty brutal attack there now the problem here and i gotta f- there's a longer version of this um i i gotta i gotta find the the longer version of it to to really put this in. yes here it is uh this is this has got to be the most brutal campaign ad i have seen uh it is <laughs> man and, and and there are some progressives out there who are eating Joe Biden alive for dare having the audacity to run this ad. Uh, they're really upset with him for doing it. They think it distracts. They think it's not nice. Uh, and they, they think that it is demeaning himself and Buttigieg along the way. Let, let, let me play the long-form part of this edit because it's it's a minute 30. Yeah, I got time. Barack Obama called Joe Biden best vice president America's ever had. But Pete Buttigieg doesn't think much of the vice president's record. Let's compare. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when park goers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative of lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Buttigieg have taken on tough fights. Under threat of a nuclear Iran, Joe Biden helped to negotiate the Iran deal. And under threat of disappearing pets, Buttigieg negotiated lighter licensing regulations on pet chip scanners. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Pete have helped shape our economy. Joe Biden helped save the auto industry, which revitalized the economy of the Midwest and led the passage and implementation of the Recovery Act, saving our economy from a depression. Pete Buttigieg revitalized the sidewalks of downtown South Bend by laying out decorative brick. And both Biden and Buttigieg have made hard decisions. Despite pressure from the NRA, Joe Biden passed the assault weapons ban through Congress. Then, he passed the Violence Against Women Act. And even when public pressure mounted against him, former Mayor Pete fired the first African-American police chief of South Bend. And then he forced out the African-American fire chief, too. Ouch! 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 But Biden doesn't have the money to actually get that on the air. I'm tempted to make a donation to Biden just so he could get it on the air and beat up the smug little mayor of South Bend. It is Eric Erickson here, and so I want to spend a little more time on the coronavirus 
situation. And I realize there is a level of curiosity out there and <clears throat> excuse me, not a lot to uh, trouble yourselves by per se. Uh, we don't have some rampant spread of the coronavirus here. An American has died from the coronavirus, but that American was in Wuhan. And I, I got to tell you, Tom Cotton has speculated that perhaps this could have come from a weapons facility in Wuhan. It is a uh, Wuhan has the laboratory that does experimental um, weapons, bioweapons testings. I, I'm, I'm trying to find the, I, I'm trying to find, yes, 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 yes. This is, this is what I was looking for. This is Tom Cotton at a hearing last week. We now know that the first case manifested no later than, no later than December 1, even though China didn't reveal it to the WHO until a month later on December 31st, when they continued to hide it from their own citizens. And they continued to say that it had been contained inside Wuhan. Today, it is in every single province in China. They also claimed for almost two months until earlier this week that it had originated in a seafood market in Wuhan, that locals had contracted it from animals in, say, bat soup or snake tartare. That is not the case. The Lancet published a study last weekend demonstrating that of the original 40 cases, 14 of them had no contact with the seafood market, including patient zero. As one epidemiologist said, that virus went into the seafood market before it came out of the seafood market. We still don't know where it originated. Could have been another seafood market. Could have been a farm. Could have been a food processing company. I would note that China, or that Wuhan also has China's only biosafety level four super laboratory that works with the world's most deadly pathogens to include, yes, coronavirus. The Chinese are saying this is conspiracy theory talk. Uh, here's the Chinese ambassador. He was on Face the Nation. Because it also gets at, there's a lot of unknown and a lot of suspicion because of that. And in fact, this week, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, who sits on the Senate Intelligence and Armed Services Committee, suggested that the virus may have come from China's biological warfare program. That's an extraordinary charge. How do you respond to that? I think it's true that a lot is still unknown. And our scientists, Chinese scientists, American scientists, scientists of other countries are doing their best to learn more about the virus. But it's very harmful, it's very dangerous to stir up suspicion, rumors, and spread them among the people. For one thing, this will create panic. Another thing is that it will fan up racial discrimination, xenophobia, all these things that will really harm our joint efforts to combat the virus. Of course, there are all kinds of speculations and rumors. There are people who are saying that these viruses are coming from some military lab, not of China, maybe in the United States. How can we believe all these crazy things? You think it's crazy. Where did the virus Absolutely come from? Absolutely crazy. Where did the virus come from? We still don't know yet. It's probably, according to some initial outcome of the research, probably 
coming from some animals. Well, that's where the coronavirus comes from. So, of course, it came from animals, but where? You know, Tom Cotton is not a man to peddle conspiracy theories. He He's right that China actually does have a bioweapons lab that studies the coronavirus, and it is in Wuhan. He is right that according to the Lancet uh, Medical Journal and uh, WHO, World Health Organization researchers, it appears that the coronavirus did not start in a uh, seafood market, but entered the seafood market and then exited, uh, infecting people there. So where did it come from? We don't know. The other thing that we are beginning to realize is that China is dramatically undercounting What's going on now? The reason I say that is I want to delve into the, into the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. Consider this. There's been a mass emission of sulfur dioxide from Wuhan. In the last 48 hours, a massive release of sulfur dioxide from Wuhan. Do you know where massive releases of sulfur dioxide can come from? The burning of bodies. Yeah. There are now reportedly in China 40,171 cases. There are 909 deaths. Japan has 90. Singapore has 40. Thailand has 32. Hong Kong, 29. South Korea, 25. Taiwan, 18. Malaysia, 16. Australia, 15. Germany, 14, Vietnam, 13, the U.S., 12, France, 11, Macau, 10, the UAE, 7, Canada, 7, India, Italy, the Philippines, the U.K. have three, Russia, Spain have two, Belgium, Cambodia, Finland, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Sweden have one each. 40,171 in China and 900 dead. The Chinese reported 2,000 new cases just yesterday. And the death toll continued to go up. Now, here's the problem is that, you know, China has what they call it, the great firewall of China. And honestly, given that China, if you're just tuning in, the breaking news today is that the American government has indicted four members of the People's Liberation Army of China of doing the hack of Equifax. It was turns out it was a Chinese government hack. And they are they've been indicted now. They're not in the United States. They're not going to go to jail, mind you. But um, that's a pretty significant deal. China has a great firewall of China, they call it. Essentially, there is only one Internet pipeline into and out of China. It goes through a People's Liberation Army facility in Shanghai, and it allows them to control what people in China see on the Internet. I've got to imagine the American military knows how to break the Great Firewall of China. It seems like a good response to all of this would be to do that. You know, there are people out there today say, well, we, we, we don't want to destabilize China. Who knows what will happen if we destabilize China? China is already destabilizing. The internal reports of what's going on in China and the leaks that are coming out of China are actually pretty significant. Uh, There are reports out of Wuhan that uh, there are dead bodies in the streets. And these are not isolated accounts. They are multiple accounts from people. Uh, There have been people sending videos of Wuhan running out of body bags that suggest that this virus is actually far worse than what a lot of people have said. Uh, 
Now, these could all be pranksters. They could all be pranksters, but there are plenty enough people who who are well-connected enough in that area who can get reports out from those people that it appears actually that there is a there there, that there is something seriously wrong there and that the virus is is spreading worse than people expected and is far deadlier than people expected. And you can't trust the communists. And that's the most extraordinary thing here is the media in this country and, and around the world They've got to go with the official statistics. Now, why, why do they have to? So here's the thing. The World Health Organization is a product of the United Nations. China is destabilizing. It is objectively true that China is destabilizing. You've got the riots in Hong Kong, and now you've got the, this uh, Wuhan virus, the, the coronavirus, the Wuhan flu, they're calling it. Uh, you've got uh, disruptions across China now. People are speaking out against the government in ways they haven't done. Uh, Xi Jinping is a dictator who has ruthlessly uh, suppressed dissent in China since he took power. And people are now starting to basically say that they don't care. And they're speaking out. That causes it to destabilize. The World Health Organization, being a product of the United Nations, is deeply invested in stability. So the World Health Organization has no reason or willingness to accept the other figures about how bad the situation is in China because to accept the the figures and, and by the way so the the figures are that you've got now hundreds of thousands of people in China infected and tens of thousands dead those are the unofficial figures that are, that are leaking out of China from various uh, organizations that it's tens of thousands of people dead not 900 people dead and it's hundreds of thousands of people infected not 40,000 people infected also, by the way, you should know there's a report today from France that or from the Netherlands, it appears someone was infected, healed, and then someone else got infected, even though that person was was uh, apparently healed, that the virus can be transmitted longer than after the person has stopped showing symptoms. If that pans out, then, of course, you've got even bigger problems. Now, we don't know. Some of this is speculation, uh, but uh, it, it, it's something to, to be mindful of. And I'm telling you guys that you can't trust the Chinese and it is about the only news. Ironically, and this is really the irony of all of this. Do you know the one news organization on planet Earth that is not willing to to believe the Chicom propaganda on this? Of all things, seriously, it's the New York Times. The New York Times, a, 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 a propaganda outlet for the left in the United States, is actually calling BS on a lot of the Chinese reports, in large part because the New York Times has sent reporters into China, and they can see with their own eyes that, that things are deeply destabilized now in China. It uh, So here's the thing. The American elite in this country, and I mentioned this last week. I don't want to I don't want to do the broken record routine where I just, just uh, ditto my monologue from last week, but— the American elite in this country have long uh, favored some sort of authoritarian uh, Chinese uh, command and control society when it comes to building infrastructure and, and solving healthcare crises and the like. They flirt with it. They love it. They just don't like Donald Trump being in charge of it, but, but they're okay with authoritarian command and control economies. When China uh, does so, it, it builds high-speed rails, never mind that they actually fall apart quickly— and they're not very safe, but China says they do it, and they get all sorts of propaganda, and, and you get all sorts of priapism out of the New York Times over what China can do that we can't do because they got a command and control society. 
And yet here comes the New York Times of all things saying, wait a second, we can't actually believe this stuff coming out of China. It appears to be far worse than what they're saying. Now, there's another side of this, though. The far worse than they're saying side of it is we've got now 12 cases in this country of coronavirus. And it's not spreading here the way it's spreading in China. I mean, conceivably in China, it started out with only a couple of cases. And now it has consumed the entire country. The largest population on the planet. And what, the the fifth largest country, territorial landmass on Earth? Or is it the third? It's it's China. I can't remember if, if the United States is third. Yeah, the U.S. is third because of Alaska. So China is the fourth largest country on the planet. The number one when it comes to population. And they're authoritarian. They're command and control. They supposedly have a fantastic health care system because they're communists, of course. And they can't control it. And meanwhile, in this country, we've we've got 12 people. It could spread. It probably the numbers will go up some given the, the, the highly infectious nature of this disease. But it's not like in China. It turns out that the Americans are, are better at dealing with this sort of stuff. You know, our, our our failed system where you can't get anything done, where you can't build a bridge or a road uh, because the government it, it gets in the way and steps all over itself. Our, our government that's highly inefficient and bureaucratic and, and our government that gets nothing done, it turns out that we're better able with our healthcare system and the free market to deal with the situation than the Chinese are dealing with this situation in their command and control society. And notice no one in the media wants to point that out after years of telling us how awesome China is and China can get everything done and China is awesome and, and China can build bridges and roads and and marvelous things and get things done and, and have people go to school and shut down churches that are annoying. And this country can't. And it turns out freedom is a great antiviral medicine. Turns out freedom and the free market actually outperform a Chinese healthcare system where the initial reaction was to cover their rear ends instead of actually solving the problem. How many thousands of people are going to die in China because the authoritarian Chinese regime that is repressive inculcated into people's minds the idea that if they were to rat out what was happening, they could die not from a disease but at the hands of their government for daring to do it. And in fact, some of them appear to have disappeared at the hands of the Chinese government for raising the red flag, which just means more and more people don't want to do it. And you know what they're doing now? They're going door to door in Wuhan, rounding people up and putting them in concentration camps. Yeah, they're actual concentration camps. They're putting people in, uh, rounding them up into these facilities where they claim they'll get health care. And the initial reports out is that they're not. They're just leaving them there to die away from the rest of the people to stop infecting people. This isn't going to go well for China, and it's just another reminder that events change things. Uh, the Chinese are, are – the president's trade war actually has had an impact on China. It actually has destabilized the Chinese economy, and now they've got this destabilization of the Chinese economy. Uh, the data point I, I gave you guys last Friday, it, it bears up. China is already 20% using 20% less oil this year than it used all of last year. That shows you the extent of just how bad the situation is over there. And yet, if you believe their propaganda outlets, you would never know that. 
Did anybody keep up with the Academy Awards last night? You know, I used to. When I was a kid, uh, occasionally we would come home from Dubai around the time that the Academy Awards were on. And my grandmother and I used to love to watch the Academy Awards together. And then when we moved back from uh, Dubai, uh, when I was in 10th grade, uh, starting 10th grade, I, I would go over to my grandparents' house. My grandmother and I would stay up and watch the Academy Awards. And honestly, the main reason both of us wanted to stay up and watch was the in memoriam section to chronicle who died last year. Half of them we didn't know, but occasionally there would be somebody like, oh, can't believe that guy died. Or, oh, I thought that guy's been dead for a long time. Nope, turned out he died last year. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know, but still, um, I, and I haven't watched him in a while, and it, it is remarkable to to watch a bunch of uh, rich white folks stand on a stage and lecture all of us about the horrors of rich white folks. Uh, Brad Pitt, of course, making his his John Bolton statement last night on stage. Who cares what Brad Pitt thinks about any of this stuff? Uh, and, and then you had apparently Joaquin, I can't, I don't know if the guy was, was doing an, an act or if he was real, he was lamenting that we take milk from cows and use it to feed ourselves, that, that this is somehow bad using cow milk is bad and taking the the children of cows and eating the children of cows the those sweet little baby calves that you and I know is delicious feel uh, that that somehow that that was bad and, and these are the same people who think it's okay to uh rip up a child in its mother's womb tear it limb from limb and harvest the the parts for for on the on the market with Planned Parenthood, and yet they're horrified that we may drink milk from a cow. Is it not? It, there really is a, a a theological meta-commentary here that you could do. That the, the Hollywood elite, who don't really believe in God, are totally fine with ripping apart someone made in the image of the Almighty and are horrified at the idea of actually drinking milk from a cow. We have gone all the way back to paganism. I mean, what is old is new again. What is several thousand years old is is new again. I mean, we you, you got Pl- the Planned Parenthood out there. They're like the priests of Moloch out there uh, sacrificing kids on the altar in the name of global warming. I did see a Babylon Bee story that I thought was very funny that uh, environmentalists are out licking doorknobs hoping to contract coronavirus to solve the world's population crisis. <laughs> By the way, I, speaking of the coronavirus, one more thing, uh, an academic organization, and now I can't remember which one it was, it has retracted an article today that was written in praise of China's one-child policy, that because China actively aborted second children and families for so long, it's a more equal society. And as a more equal society, you're more likely to find men and women in positions of leadership in China because the Chinese government ran abortion vans around. And if it got wind of someone being pregnant, they'd show up and kill the second child. And by the way, I'm not making that up. The the, the abortion vans were a real thing. And somehow this was a good thing. Well, they've, I guess, decided the paper was too controversial and they pulled it from the academic website today because turns out the Chinese aren't all that competent at much anything these days. And it's going to have a direct impact on us when we can't get our iPhones made because they can't go to work because of the virus.